1: As I mentioned a few episodes ago, most of the biographical ascriptions are found in a cluster within what scholars often call the second Davidic collection, running from Psalm 51 through Psalm 72. Gordon Wenham says that these psalms exemplify problems that the pious person may experience, and they invite him, like David, to overcome life's crises with the help of his psalms, and with God. The biographical ascription to this psalm tells us that it reflects upon the occasion when David was seized by the Philistines in Gath. That story is told in 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 and following. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, You see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Therefore, I suppose you could say that this psalm is best suited to a time in your life when you feel surrounded by enemies on every side. You flee from one only to find yourself in the grasp of another. When that happens, you will discover, along with David, that God is the only one you can trust. He is your strength, your comfort, and your rescue. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning with the biographical ascription and proceeding to verse 1. To the choirmaster. According to the dove on far-off Terebinths, a mictum of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly." The Hebrew at the end of verse two is difficult there. The old King James had that as, mine enemies would daily swallow me up for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. Now that is probably not correct. Normally when you see the English phrase God most high or something like that, it is translating the Hebrew El Elyon. But this is something totally different. The Hebrew word here means simply height, or maybe better, from high up. What David seems to be saying is, my enemies are powerful people. David was on the run. David was a renegade, and he was opposed and harassed by people in power, people in lofty positions, people like King Saul, and people like the rulers of the Philistines. It is a scary thing to be opposed by people in power power. And that is what David is facing here. Look at verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. The Coverdale translation says there, They daily mistake my words. All that they imagine is to do me evil. It's an evil thing to distort and misrepresent another person's words. Fake news has been around for a very long time, and it does great damage to human beings and to civil society. David's enemies have attempted to ensnare him in a web of lies. Verse 6. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O oh God. Most commentators understand this, I think rightly, as referring to those people who have opposed David, not the nations generally. David is saying, cast down my oppressors, Lord. This is another example of an imprecatory prayer, which we've talked about before. It is not wrong to desire justice. It is not wrong to pray for justice. With this language, David is leaving things in the judgment of God, a judgment he trusts in even more than his own discernment. A man could go mad pursuing all his enemies, but none of them are beyond the reach of God. Matthew Henry says here, none are raised so high or settled so firmly, but that the justice of God can bring them down, both from their dignities and from their confidences. You can rest in that. You should rest in that. You should leave it to the wrath of God, as Paul says in Romans 12, 19, verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? I don't imagine that many people find the first half of verse 8 in the ESV translation to be very helpful. What are tossings? If you try and type that or tweet that, it will be auto-corrected. It is not a word that we use a great deal. The old King James had it as wanderings, which I think is actually far more accessible And in fact, it's closer to what the Hebrew word actually means. So I'm not sure why the ESV felt the need to change that. The point is that David has been living on the run. He'd settle in somewhere and then he'd be betrayed. And Saul would find out where he was and come looking for him. And he would have to pull up stakes and find a new hole to hide in. David is trusting here that God has kept track of all his hardships and sorrows. It is a comfort to godly people to know that the Lord sees all. No one gets away with anything. Every injury done to a child of God will be accounted for. David is resting in that, and you can too. Verse 9, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. What a good, faithful ending. David at the end, turns his attention away from his sorrows and back towards his Savior. He grounds himself in what he knows. He knows that God is for me. Well, if that be so, then who can stand against me? David looks at what is sure. The word of God and the will of God. God has said that he would sit the throne. Therefore, what matter these movements and machinations of men? In God I trust and I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I love how David alternates between talking to God and talking to himself in his times of prayer. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say that if we would overcome fear and depression, we should spend less time listening to ourselves and more time talking to ourselves. And that is what David is doing here. He is drawing himself back to the foundational stones of his life. God's word, God's Will and God's character. See those things again and you will be settled. David is settled now. David is secure now and determined to keep his vows. His vows surely relate to promises of worship, thanksgiving, and gratitude. We mustn't forget to praise and thank God for his former works when we find ourselves in need of new ones. David is determined not to be that guy. He will praise the Lord and remember his former graces. Thanks be to God. The RMM Plan has us reading two psalms today, so we will also take a look at Psalm 57. It, too, has a biographical ascription. It reads, To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a micdom of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now, this could refer to a, a couple of different occasions, but given that it follows immediately a psalm written in refle- reflection upon his escape from Gath, it might make the most sense to associate it with the story in 1 Samuel 22, 1 5, which immediately follows it in the narrative. And that story reads as follows. You'll recognize the first line of the story from the last line of the other one. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forests of Hereth. Therefore, I suppose you could say this would be a good psalm for you to pray when you feel surrounded by enemies, but when you have also begun to see the help and deliverance of God. There is fear here and danger, but also a growing awareness of God's saving help and certain victory. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Many of us love that recurring reference to hiding in the shadow of God's wings, almost universally understood to refer to the practice of mother hens huddling about their chicks in order to protect them from wind and rain. John Calvin loved it too and said here that there are seasons when we are privileged to enjoy the calm sunshine of prosperity, but there is not a day of our lives in which we may not suddenly be overtaken by storms of affliction, and it is necessary we should be persuaded that God will cover us with his wings. That is marvelous. Verse 2, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. On this word cry, W.S. Plumer says, Without some measure of earnestness, prayer is solemn mockery. David did not merely mouth pleasantries to God. When he was in prayer, he was in earnest. And so should it be with us. On the second part of this verse, Matthew Henry writes in everything that befalls us, we ought to see and own the hand of God. Whatever is done is of his performing. In it, his counsel is accomplished and the scripture is fulfilled. It is interesting to hear those quotations side by side, isn't it? Earnest prayer and a rock-solid belief in God's sovereign purposes can and should Go hand in hand. Listen to what Henry goes on to say in commenting on this passage. Having affirmed the sovereignty of God and the certainty of his purpose, he says, though God be high, most high, yet he condescends so low as to take care that all things be made to work for good to them. This is a good reason why we should, in all our straits and difficulties, cry unto him. Not only pray, but pray for Earnestly. Do you hear that? The sovereignty of God and the certainty of His purpose is a good reason to pray, not a good reason not to pray. Some of us think that if God is going to do whatever He has purposed to do, then why pray in the first place? But the psalmist and Matthew Henry and W.S. Bloomer take the opposite view. They would say that knowing that God is committed to His glory and our good, is the only thing that makes prayer rational in the first place. If God isn't powerful and sovereign, and if God doesn't have a plan for our well-being and his glory, a plan that he is capable of and committed to, then on what basis do we pray? But thanks be to God, he does have such a plan. And he is a God of power. And therefore, prayer is not a waste of time. Prayer is part of his plan. R.C. Sproul was asked one time why we should pray if God is going to do whatever he has purposed to do. His answer cannot be improved upon. He said, we pray because God has ordained the ends and God has ordained the means. And prayer is one of those means. By it and in response to it, he means to release grace and help from heaven. And that is what we see in the very next verse. Look at verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the mighty hand of heaven. That is how God has designed the universe. Now, Moving from the magnificent to the mundane, we should probably say a quick word about the term selah. You've probably noticed if you've been reading along in your Bible that I haven't been vocalizing the word as we encounter it in the text. Christians often wonder how to handle this strange little word. Derek Kidner says here, this, referring to selah, this occurs 71 times and a further three times in Habakkuk 3, predominantly in books one to three of the Psalter. Probably it is the signal for an interlude or change of musical accompaniment. The vast majority majority of commentators would agree. Selah is almost certainly a musical mo- notation. Maybe it means switch from wind instruments to stringed instruments. M- maybe it means play faster now. Maybe it means sing higher now. Whatever it means... The precise meaning has been lost to history. Therefore, since it isn't part of the content or message of the psalm, and since we don't even know what it means, it seems doubly wise to leave the word unvocalized. And that will be my habit throughout. Verse 4. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. It's very common in the Old Testament and particularly in the Psalms for the Bible to use animal imagery to depict the ferocity and viciousness of those who oppose God's people. In Psalm 91, for example, the psalmist speaks of lions and adders and young lions and serpents. David's enemies are out for blood but David is not afraid. He appeals to the creator and master of them all. Verse five, be exalted. O God above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. Do you hear again David speaking to himself? Plumer says wonderfully here, Our natural powers are dull and sluggish in God's praises, and so they must be aroused by self-exhortation. That is particularly true in the morning. David vows, I will awake the dawn. Notice in passing that instrumental music has always had a role to play in private prayer as in public worship. David speaks to his harp and his lyre. He speaks to his fingers, you might say, and commands them to to play skillfully and to rejoice gladly in the salvation of God. Verse 9. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. These verses are among those quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, verses 9 to 13. Plumer comments here saying, as verse 9 is actually quoted in the New Testament as applicable to the gospel times, and as David was in many respects a type of Christ, there is nothing forced or strained in regarding this psalm as typical messianic. If David was victorious, much more shall Christ be. If David put down all his foes, much more shall Christ subdue all things to himself, closed quote. David saw things ending well, despite that he was in immediate danger. At the end of the day, that is pretty basic to the definition of biblical faith. Tim Keller says here, regardless of what happens immediately to believers, eventually it will be all right. Whether we live to see it or not, one day soon, my friends, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
0: And thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.